Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, we got a Mississippi killer on, Mr. Daniel Lemon. Daniel, how are you doing? Oh, man, pretty good, pretty good. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Jacob, how are you doing over here? Oh, doing well. I'm excited. Excited to have you on, Daniel. Uh, so, Daniel, of course, is from the uh, Do-It-Yourself Hunter YouTube channel. Uh, does it with, uh, again, a friend of the show, Jeremy Aaron. And we just had Jeremy on the podcast not too long ago, um, right before the Mobile Hunters Expo. We got to meet with you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo, and I got to harass you enough about about finally getting you on the podcast. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you did, you did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, we're finally making it happen. I'm excited because uh, for a younger guy, kind of like us, you are you are quickly learning and having success in a bunch of different states, but. We really want to talk about your home state of Mississippi, uh, but also we'll dabble a little bit in the, in the kind of the traveling hunting aspect of everything. But real quick, I want to talk about when it comes to Mississippi and like your region, how did y'all grow up deer hunting in your part of the state? And, and what kind of outside influences were like an influence for you, especially maybe hunting with your dad when it comes to hunting pressure, dog pressure, all that kind of stuff? How did that all play a factor as you were kind of growing up hunting Mississippi? Well, you know, hunting in the South, we get a lot of pressure. We got a lot of people. Um, and growing up, you know, we was a part of a, a couple hunting clubs, one just right down the road from my house, another one about 25 minutes away. And it was a big club that was pretty much primarily dog running. I mean, when dog season opened up, you're liable to see a hundred people a day over there running, running deer with dogs. So kind of with the dog running, um, you know, I never was a dog runner, just hunted around areas like that. So it's kind of like, you know, high traffic areas, hunting public land, you kind of play the people. It's sort of the same way I've done with dog hunting over the years is, you know, with dog running, everybody's running the roads, you know, trying to catch deer crossing roads. And I like getting in there where deer are going to be traveling, running, because ain't nothing going to be down there but the deer and the dog. People hardly ever get down in there where the deer are going to be. They're always up at the road trying to catch the deer crossing or crossing a cutover where they can see it or, uh, you know, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, Daniel, you're going to see us do hand motions all the time about who's going to talk first. So you, you got to uh, see this a little bit during the uh, roundtable we just did, which would have been this episode will actually come out after the roundtable episode, correct? Yeah, I mean, it might. It might. It just depends. We'll see. We did a big roundtable episode, and you were sitting on it with uh, had uh, both Jeremy and also uh, Jonathan Moreland on there, uh, along with Scott Seals and Carl Brown. So it was, it was pretty awesome. But um, us also – oh, yeah, dude, it was an unbelievable episode. So, like, hopefully maybe by the, time, by the time this episode comes out, it's already out. If not, stay tuned. It's going to be out within the next couple weeks. Um, but also, I was going to mention real early on this podcast, guys, this is a video podcast as well. So – Real quick, if you guys are, you know, listen to this podcast, you can go to YouTube and you can watch this right now. Um, you should see me and Andrew squirming back and forth, getting ready to ask questions. But, Daniel, we get hit up all the time with guys that hunt in areas 
with a lot of dog hunting pressure. And that's something very specific to the Southeast. Um, some states have it more so than others. You know, a couple of states that are super well known for it's Mississippi, Arkansas, South Carolina, and Alabama too. Um, so, and there's other states as well that I, I believe you can dog hunt in. Um, it's something that me and Andrew don't have a lot of experience in because where we typically hunt, there, there's no dog hunting pressure. Uh, it's just illegal to do. They can't do it in a lot of the counties that we hunt in, especially if we travel. So it's something I don't have a lot of familiarity with and how to deal with that kind of pressure because you're talking about extreme pressure on the landscape. It's like taking your normal hunting pressure times a thousand of what, you know, a pack of dogs, pack of walkers, and, you know, 20, 30 guys out there sitting roads and everything can do. So this is something we're going to talk a lot about in this episode. And I think those listeners in those areas can get a lot out of this because, again, there's a lot of questions I want to personally ask you that I've been curious just by the questions we get from some of those listeners hunting in these kind of areas. Um, real quick, early on in your kind of like, I call it hunting career, but like early on when you started hunting, especially when you started hunting more by yourself, because I can't think all of us, you know, grew up, had a mentor, you hunted with them for a while and you started going off on your own. How did how were you taking the dog hunting pressure into consideration for hunting specifically during the rut? And maybe before you even answer that, you can talk about when is dog season in your area of Mississippi open, and how does that correlate with uh, rifle season and with the rut specifically? Okay, well, in Mississippi, and it kind of changes a few days from year to year, but it's always, I believe, the first Saturday before Thanksgiving is when our rifle season um hits here in mississippi and whenever that hits you can dog hunt dog season's open then we have a what they call a primitive weapon season that hits usually around the first saturday in december i mean that's you know maybe it could be the first second it's right in there somewhere it's always different every year and whenever that hits dog hunting shuts down Okay, it will it will be shut down from then until December twenty fourth. It always opens up December twenty fourth, and it will run till the third Wednesday in January. So that's really the big stretch. Um, and and I, in my opinion, down here, especially in this area, is why we don't have really good deer um, because you know our rut here hits from Christmas on and in my opinion that really puts a stress on the deer with dogs running for as far as a, a, a natural rut i guess you could say where you know the first does are getting bred and then you know the second you get that first second third rut and you get a bunch of bucks chasing one doe and and in, like i say just my opinion that kind of gets your balance out as far as a, a good rut plus we have a gun season during the rut so that puts a lot of pressure as far as getting big deer killed as well and the dogs you know they're help they help big deer get killed too so that that's why i feel like we don't have near as big a deer around here as as some parts of the state do how much is dog hunting in the culture of your part of uh mississippi which you're kind of like in the more northern part of the state how big of it is a part of the culture is it like one of those things that like your more casual hunters typically will be out there you know you know going with somebody that's got some got some uh dogs and they'll kind of you know you have a lot more casual hunters and of course you have the more passionate you know dog hunters but like how big is it a part of the culture up there where, where you're at oh it's it's a big thing out there's a couple families that live around here um that all they've done their whole life has been dog hunting. They would literally, you know, they were they were self-employed pretty much their whole life. And when dog season hit, they quit work. 
they did not work anymore till dog season was over. Um, so it's it's very big, and like you say, more more your casual hunters, you'll hear people talk about not even when they talk about deer season, they're talking about when dog season opens. You know, I talk about deer season. I'm talking about October first when bow season hits. They're like, "What are you doing then?" I'm like, "Well, I'm bow hunting." Oh, I ain't never done that. You know, it's just uh, it's it's a bit it's big as far as a a way of hunting around here that's been done for a long time. Mm-hmm. Daniel, just to set the stage a little bit more, uh, one awesome thing about living where we live here in the deep south is is that late rut. And that allows you to do a lot of traveling in October, November, I'm assuming, where where you're getting to go out and you're hunting the Midwest, you're traveling, you're trying to draw other states, and you get to go have all that fun, and then you get to come back home in December through January and hunt the rut at home, too. So, I mean, you just got like four months of like great, great hunting. Um, But to set the stage just a little bit more, can you describe the terrain and habitat in the part of Mississippi that you're hunting? So what's the topography like? What's the habitat like? Like, is it cutover country? Are we hunting river bottoms here? Like, where are you at? The part I'm in, I'm, I'm kind of North central Mississippi. So we've got a lot of, a lot of timber company ground, um, cutovers, you pine trees, real hilly clay ground up in the, in the hills. Um, we got a couple small rivers that feed into some core lakes that, uh, that, that primarily have flat ground around them. Uh, so it's kind of a mix really right here where I live is, is the perfect mix of your, your hill country and your river bottom. Um, but it's not, it's not per se like the Ohio river you're hunting or the, the Mississippi river, but it's a type of river bottom. Okay. Do you ever travel around Mississippi? Because I know Mississippi's a pretty diverse state. I mean, they got that that Delta country, which I hear I've never hunted it, but I hear it's pretty pretty legit. But then you also got stuff like very similar to what we hunt here in Alabama, like what you just described, like that cutover country type stuff. Right. Yeah, I've traveled around a pretty good bit um, during the. I like to hit the Delta more early in december because their rut tends to be end of november to about the 15th of december and in that part of the in that part of the you know mississippi the uh the dog running is about played out to nothing uh as far as landowners and stuff go so dog running that direction is pretty well you know played out but uh yeah i I travel, like I said, a good bit, but toward that time of the year, end of December, January, I've traveled a, enough around other states that I, I pretty much just hang pretty close within, you know, 45 minutes uh, of the house here, and I can get to a good bit of public ground uh, within 45 minutes okay. from where I live. So outside of the dog hunting pressure, it, like the guys who are still hunting around or, or tree stand hunting, just whatever – uh, around your area who maybe aren't hunting with dogs what is that pressure like i mean is there a lot of guys bow hunting or are there a lot of guys rifle hunting without dogs you as far as bow hunting that time of year there is slim to none do it um at all because like i say you can you can look at your states that you know that time of the year the rut's going that's pretty much what that state's main you know, season would be like, say, Iowa, 
your ruts in November. So bow hunting is the big, big thing up there. Down here, since gun season, you know, is during the rut, gun hunting's pretty much your big, uh, your big season that everybody pretty much focuses on. But like I say, that time of the year, uh, Christmas on, yeah, you hardly get anybody um, bow hunting uh, the rest of the year. But uh, yeah, bow hunting can be good that time of year if you can play certain things right as far as low pressure areas, uh, places nobody's really focused on much, overlooked spots. It can be good. Okay. So kind of, I want to start getting into your style, I guess, of how you like to hunt these parts of Mississippi that time of year. So again, we're, we're primarily talking about rut hunting here. I mean, what, what, what's, what would you say is like your bread and butter for when you start going into that time of year? Like, what are you doing differently that's allowing you to be consistent on mature bucks that maybe some other guys aren't doing? Well, I don't know how much stuff I do different, but I can tell you what I do um, as far as how I'm doing it. But uh, like I say, as far as it being much different from anybody else, I don't know because a lot I really learned from Jeremy as far as how to hunt the, the these river bottoms, these small river bottoms around here because I was never a river bottom hunter when I was growing up. I was always, like I say, our hunting club was always in the hill country. So – I think that too is why I like playing the hill country more with a bow because I know how to read it, understand it. Um, but around here during the rut, you know, like I say, I still got a little bit of private land I hunt. I like running cameras, see what's there. Um, but when I'm hunting the, the public, and this took years of just knowledge and things I found over the years. Say I find a big scraping area one year and say it's at the tail end of the rut, I'll mark that scrape. And then I'll come early, earlier in the year when I'm expecting those bucks to be up working scrapes or, you know, transition areas, funnels, you know, I'm expecting them to travel. I'll hit them a little bit earlier the next year and see if they've been back to those areas um, a little earlier um, than when I found them, say, the year before. And it, it, it took me, like I say, it took me a long time just to, figure out things and and a lot of things i've done too was say if it's somewhere i've seen a big deer or seen a buck a lot of times i'll i'll if i see a sure enough good buck i'll remember that spot i'll mark it remember it um and i'll try to figure out why i seen him there and you know i really like getting in these corners these odd corners nobody else you know focuses on around here because around here you're not you are hardly ever going to have people walk in areas and hunt you know and really really hunt you can you'll have some go down there and and what they call hunting but if you can figure out just a little bit something different than they do you got a good chance of killing some good deer and we're about to talk about that before we do you're talking about if you find uh scrapes like especially like a really big scrape like we'd call it community scrapes some guys call it primary scrapes ton of looking branches ton of sign real big scrape um, you know, you'll go back to it maybe like the the following year, but a little bit earlier than when you found it. Can you give me like a time frame? Like how much earlier are you walking these spots? Like say, like give us an example, like when you may would find it one year and then how much earlier would you go check on the, the following year? 
usually when I find something like that, that I'm, that I mark to go check the next year, I, I'm usually finding it that first, second week of January. Um, and then the next year I'll come in right before Christmas because usually around here, the scrapes will start, you know, opening up Christmas, a little bit before Christmas, maybe usually about from the 20th to right after Christmas, right at the first of the year. And then our rut kind of blows into full swing first uh, of January to, you know, I mean, it'll trickle on into end of January, first of February. Um, and most of the time, once it does that, you don't see scrapes getting hit like they was that, you know, third week of December, especially if you got weather for that. Now, also with the scrapes, one thing I'm curious about, because I know you travel a whole bunch, we're going to talk about some travel hunting maybe a little bit later, but have you ever had success hunting around scrapes in Mississippi? I have. Uh, actually, it's been, let's see, I think it was 2016, the first real, sure enough, it was a really a great hunt, but uh, it was a spot just in this little bottom that I found on the map. And it was on hunting club. Uh, and me and my dad went in there one afternoon and he was going to another spot gun hunting. And it was right before Christmas. It was, uh, if I remember right, it was like December the 18th, I think it was. And we had a front coming in that afternoon and been getting pictures of a pretty good deer in the area. And, you know, I, this is like early in my bow hunting career, sort of. I was just learning on how to, you know, find areas and try to understand what bucks done and where they would live and where they could possibly come out, you know, early in the day where you could get a chance at them. And, uh, I've seen this bottom on the map, pretty hardwood bottom going up in between a big old cut over. And, uh, I, I eased in there that afternoon, had my bow, uh, got in there and found some big, you know, fresh scrapes. And it just rained that morning a little bit, enough that, you know, everything was washed out. But we had another front coming in that night right after dark. And the wind was on a switch. And I like hunting switching winds in the afternoons especially. But I got in there that afternoon, got set up, and was sitting there. And I'd probably been there 45 minutes or so. And it was getting kind of late. And like I say, this is the first experience I'd had over scrapes. You know, I'd always – watch videos in the Midwest and over scrapes and stuff like that and just seeing some awesome stuff. And I was sitting there in the tree looking due north and uh, I was, I could hear something behind me. Just, it sounded, it almost sounded like a squirrel in a tree, you know, in that time of year, we still got a lot of leaves on down here in the South, but uh, I could just hear leaves shaking and I turned and looked behind me and I could just see this buck. He had his head up in a licking branch and he was just tearing it up. Man, he would hit that scrape, and I got ready. I got nervous, and he ended up coming up 25 yards kind of behind me to my right, and uh, standing in a scrape, I shot him, and he, he hit the ground. But uh, that was my really first experience as far as hunting over scrapes, and I've learned a lot more since then. As far as I can remember, I've not killed a buck in a scrape like that since, but I have killed bucks since checking scrapes um you know close to a scrape within say 40 50 yards 
you know, definitely scent checking. No doubt they were scent checking them. Um, but as far as killing one in a scrape like that, I don't believe I've ever done that since. Let, let's talk a little bit more about buck scent checking scrapes. This is something that we talked to Jeremy a little bit about. And uh, he said something similar that he likes hunting kind of downwind of them to where he's able to uh, catch those bucks that are swinging downwind. I think in your seminar at the Mobile Hunters Expo, you mentioned something about you want to hunt like 40 yards downwind of the scrape so you can cover, you know, 40 yards to the scrape and then 40 more yards behind you away from the scrape. So you could potentially shoot a deer that's 80 yards downwind of that scrape. Did I did I hear that right? Is that something that you like to do? It is. Uh I love doing that if I can, I, I, you know, and I, and I pretty much put that distance as far as a reference for me, because, you know, I'm, I'm plenty confident enough shooting out there at 80, 90, hundred yards. Um, but I want that sure enough positive, you know, if he's at 40 yards, I no doubt know I can, you know, kill him. Um, you know, a lot of people, if it if say, if their comfort zone is at 20, you know, set 20 yards downwind of that scrape, and then you got another 20 yards downwind of yourself. So there's your 40 yard buffer. Because I've seen a lot of times, you know, and some of it's just been observing from a distance seeing deer and especially mature bucks. They're not going to come to that scrape once they know that does should be hitting them scrapes, checking them. They know that they should be able to smell that scrape from a safe distance. So I want to be in that safe feeling distance that they think they are. So you talked about the, the bucks for your area, they'll be hitting the scrapes around, you know, that third week of December on up into January. And then they kind of, they kind of lay off the scrapes a little bit because they're probably chasing does. What you just mentioned where you say that those bucks really like to hang like 40 yards back is that more of like that third week of December thing, or is that more of a January thing where you're in the, kind of the heat of the rut, they should be chasing does, and that's when they're scent checking it, as opposed to in that third week of December kind of pre-rut time frame, that's when they're actually pawing the ground and working the scrapes? I've seen a mix. Uh, a lot of times when I'm talking about their scent checking that scrape, or at least when I've seen them do it, is that point right whenever you know scrapes have been hit three or four times you know they're open they're good they're clean and bucks they know that they're they're you know freshen back up for the year um and they like i say what i've seen them do is that right before you know they kick in to the first rut is when i've seen them kind of doing that scent checking because them big mature bucks, they know them little bucks are hitting that scrape, especially, and I've seen this too with a scrape that several deer hit. And so you got four or five different bucks coming in there. Every once in a while, you'll see a big deer coming there. But I guarantee you that big deer, he's probably scent checking that scrape more than what you see him doing. Um, so I'm going to say probably that first few days before the rut really kicks in is when I see that those mature bucks scent checking. Okay. Now, is that something that you see them scent checking that on a defined trail downwind of that scrape? Or is it, or they're just kind of hanging back and there's not really any defined trail or, or any kind of edge that they're working. It's just, they're kind of, kind of floating through wherever they feel comfortable. 
You know, I've seen both. I've seen a, a defined trail before. Well, I'm not going to say a, a majorly defined trail, maybe just a faint trail like one of those ones that you'd almost have to have snow on to see it. I'm sure y'all have seen where somewhere if you got snow and say it's melting, a trail of any kind will show up as the snow's melting, you know, rather than anywhere else. And I've seen that before, just a slightly faint trail that uh, – that I've seen them bucks, you know, easing around on checking them scent, checking them scrapes. And I've also seen them just coming downwind of one, you know, with no trail at all, no rhyme or reason why they're there other than the wind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, here in Alabama, it's like every four years when we get like a decent snow that, that sticks, you better get your butt in the woods and start looking around. You better do some scouting, dude, because like, man, there's nothing like – having some snow like we never get that down here it's probably the same for you i mean it it really is once every four or five years but uh do you ever try to put cameras down one of those scrapes or are you running i mean do you run cameras like at all do you run them on the scrapes like what what are your thoughts on trail cameras oh man you know i love trail cameras and i love the cell cameras especially when i'm traveling in states that i can use them. um but around here you know, I'll put cameras on scrapes because more than likely a buck, if there's a buck in that area I want to hunt, he's going to show up to that scrape. At some point in time, 99% of the time it's night, but I know he's there. And that's, I just want to know he's there because I hardly ever hunt. You know, there's been a few times, a few exceptions that I hunt where my camera is, but a lot of times I just want to know he's there I'm going to figure out what direction he's coming from and I'm hunting around. I'm hunting from there. I'm hunting anywhere I can expect him to come from. You know, I may hunt trails or somewhere I know he could be traveling from. So I use them to know that they're there. And then I just hunt anywhere around that I expect to catch him in daylight. Okay. So when you get him on camera and you're kind of, I guess, maybe looking at the map, trying to, figure out i guess his like point of origin or whatever i'm assuming you're trying to figure out where he's bedded most of the time and you know down here bedding can be everywhere anywhere i'm sure y'all deal with that with you know cutovers and stuff and there's oh my gosh there's thousands of acres of that around here i mean it's ridiculous but if you get to looking at a map there's some little areas you know I'm take for instance this one hunting club I'm in. There's this one ridge. I know there's gonna be two scrapes pop up on it every year. I can put a camera on it and usually I'll put up just a regular camera there, you know, say end of November, and I'll leave it the whole year. Just leave it all the way to the end of the season. And I can watch that camera and how them deer travel. And it you wouldn't believe how it changes, say whenever you know, everybody's down hunting on a weekend or whatever, say the weekend dates, a deer, they may be coming from this, you know, a different direction that nobody can get to or come around. So that could be like a different bedding area for say the weekend when people's down pressures hot and heavy. And then say during the week, nobody's there, you know, these deer, they may move back over to this area and change up coming from a different direction. So most of the time, like you say, I'm trying to find, you know, where he's bedding. I just need a direction. And then I can't pinpoint 
exactly where he's betting. Not in the south, you can't, because there's so much ground for him to bet in. But it will give me a general idea. And usually what I'm trying to hunt is travel areas in between where I know the majority of the deer bedding and where I get pictures of them at. Okay. That that makes sense. I'm always curious about the bedding thing, especially with guys like yourself who are hunting pine again pine cut over country where like you said you got thousands of acres of that thick bedding cover i mean they can just go lay down kind of wherever they want uh let's talk about wind switches oh my god you took my freaking letter down <laughs> i wrote that down i was gonna save that okay right. uh, i figured you were um you mentioned wind switches earlier and Switch, that you really like switching winds switching winds uh you said that you like hunting a a, a wind switch can you just explain your thought process behind that, like what that actually entails? A lot of what a wind switch to me, uh, you know, occurs is when a front is hitting. Like I'm sure y'all probably watched my Kansas show um, when I killed the big brow tine buck. And I had found that spot, I think on day three or four, and I knew just by the sign I found where it was at, the area it was in, low pressure. You know, I was back away from anybody. I was three miles from a walk-in area. You know, I was in a was in the boat, so I could walk literally 30, 40 yards from the boat. Um, but I was three miles from a, a parking lot. So it was going to be a, you know, a long way for anybody to get in there too. But I seen, you know, I, we watch the weather, especially when we're traveling, but we're watching the weather. And I could see that there was a front pushing in on the tent. And I knew what that meant was we're going to have, you know, it was going to be like 60, 70 degrees means you're going to have south winds. I couldn't hunt with a south wind in that spot because there was a pretty high chance if a deer skirted me downwind, you know, it wasn't a spot I could funnel them up in. They're liable to come 100 yards from me. They was going to smell me. You know, I could ruin that spot. But I could, I seen in the weather that that wind was going to do a 180. And the closer it got, you know, to that day, you know, you can look at the hourly forecast and I could see the exact time that it was going to do it then or close to the exact time. And it said it was going to do it at like 10 o'clock that day. So that morning, the morning I killed that buck, I went to another spot that I was hunting with a south wind. And about it's about 9 30 9 45 i was like all right i'm gonna go ahead and ease my stuff down i'm gonna get over to this other spot the spot that i knew was gonna be the the area i needed to be in i got down and was walking to my truck and the wind literally switched from a south to a northwest hit me in the face and it dropped five degrees the temperature dropped five degrees as soon as that happened i ran to the truck jumped in it drove around through the boat in, come down in there and the reason i like hunting wind switches is because when those big deer are laying in a spot and they're comfortable with the wind they got and it switches on them they're going to be like oh i could this this could not be good for me right now i need to i need to get up and i need to do something so i like the wind switch because i feel like they're wanting to get up change the area they're in because the wind for them, they're not comfortable with that anymore. Okay. How how soon after that wind switch happens do you want to be out there? I mean, it sounds like it's just like immediate. Or or is there like a 
I mean, what's the shelf life on that? You know, if you can't make it out until five hours after the wind shifts, do you think that it, it still holds water after that long or, or no? In my opinion, it's kind of playing out um, within that time frame. And like I say, it depends too. It depends on when that wind switches. You know, like that hunt, it was in the morning, you know, 10 o'clock that morning. I ended up killing that deer at 2 o'clock. Um, when it finally, the wind finally got and stayed, you know, hundred percent where it was going to be the rest of the time. So yes, there's a shelf life on it. Like I say, I can't say for sure how long it is, but you know, as soon as I can get out with a, you know, behind a wind switch like that, I want to be out. Okay. Now, what is your, what is your approach to a wind switch situation? Like, are you trying to are you trying to predict, I mean, I guess you, you are, you're trying to predict where he was versus where you think he wants to go after that wind switch? Yes, that's 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 what I'm looking for. Um, say say there's a bedding area over here, you know, and I, I find this travel area, travel corridor, a pinch point, a funnel, and I know there's another, say, bedding area, maybe a feeding area, uh in another direction and i know when that wind switches he's going to want to get up and go say to another bedding area or he's you know been waiting on that wind to switch say to go to a feeding area uh that way he has that wind in his favor going there also with the wind switching do you see especially like in really high pressure areas like say we're going to talk about mississippi here maybe with the dog pressure during the rut do you see those bucks like right after that wind switch? They relocate bedding areas at all? Like, is, is that like a time, even with all that pressure, like they're trying, they're going to try to get some kind of advantage moving to like a different bedding area if there's that one eighty uh, degree wind switch? Oh, I hundred percent believe that. Um, I've seen that a couple times uh, down here. I, you know, I done it right down here back this year. A wind switch come in that afternoon, and I was just. I was kind of playing the wind. I had a, actually a little bit more against me than what I usually would want. Um, I had the wind kind of catty cornered at my back and it blowing more in front and to my left. And I was just slipping down through there. I was actually trying to get and turn around and get the wind back in my face. It was going to kind of slip back toward, toward the, uh, the fields. I was expecting some deer to possibly go in. And uh, as soon as I got up and I was easing through there, I caught a buck coming to me, and he was just barely, I'm talking about the wind was barely going past him. And I know, you know, he there's probably no other reason for him to have come up through that spot without that wind of switching like that because, you know, earlier that day, the wind was, a, I think, a southwest, and it turned to a northwest. And so in that particular spot, it was a spot, you know, he could come through and feel safe. Now, another thing you talk about with the wind switch that I'm interested in getting your take on, especially because you've hunted so many different states now, but also like hunting Mississippi. When we're talking about mature bucks, especially when you're starting to get to that pre-rut rut time frame, what is your thoughts on that buck trying to use a wind advantage at most of the time, if not all the time, when he's trying to cover some ground? I mean, do you see it pretty often when you lay, get a visual on the deer, he's using some kind of wind advantage, whether it's quartering to his face or maybe headwind or something like that, crosswind. Like, what, what is your take on that, especially, like, down Mississippi, but even, like, some of the other states you've hunted in? I have definitely seen where big deer 
mature deer will use the wind 99% of the time, no matter if they're just traveling, uh, if they're going to food, because that's one of their lifelines. They have to live. They live by deer, especially big deer, which all deer do, but you know, you see big deer really playing on their senses more than anything else because they live by their nose, their eyes, and their ears. And that's what they live by, you know? So, I, yes, I see that a lot all across the country as far as how deer play wind, especially mature deer. They're playing wind if they can. Now, taking that in consideration with the hunting pressure that you deal with in Mississippi, especially with the dog hunters, how do you – pay attention to that and, and focus on that when you're going out and hunt because so many guys and i'm guilty of it too i think we're all been guilty of it at a lot of times in our you know our hunting uh, explorations is you always want is everybody's talking about like yeah have the wind in your face gotta have the wind in your face when you're hunting different that when like you go out hunting how do you take giving that buck somewhat of a wind advantage where you think hey more than likely this buck's probably bedded in this general area how do you take in consideration where you set yourself up for the highest odds of success based off wind direction for him, but still allows you to be able to set up there. Because if you're thinking about it, a buck in an area that's getting ran by dogs all the time, that's got to be one of the most unedged animals on North America. Okay. Again, that is a, like, that is a, like, I, I, that is so much higher of a hunting pressure than just, you know, guys running around the woods. Because a, a, a deer is not necessarily going to sit down if there's a pack of dogs on them. Unlike a buck, you know, with a bunch of hunters, he can he can lay low and just hold tight and, you know, he's probably going to get shot. Uh, he can't do that with a pack of dogs on him. So what is, like, what is your thought process, or process, process, thought process, God, I can't talk, <laughs> going in and thinking about that, thinking, hey, this buck's probably going to want a wind advantage. How are you taking into consideration on setups, especially during that time of period or that time of the year when they are getting ran to death when it comes to, you know, dog pressures, both on, you know, some private land and, and I don't know if they can run on public land, but what's your take on all that? Well, you know, that time of year, whenever the dogs are running, a lot of times what I like looking for is – in a spot that I can have a wind and a buck can have a wind, you know, it may be down in the bottom where say there's two sloughs coming together and I know that they're going to make a turn. You know, they got to, they got to come to this spot to make a turn. And I know they're going to go a different direction because say there's water this way, you know, and it depends on the wind, but I won't, if I can, my wind blowing across the corner, where he feels like he has to come to to turn and get his nose back into the wind because deer, they know how to play wind just about anywhere because they lived in wind their whole life. Um, a lot of times, like I said, a lot of times I want to play a corner wind, crosswind. If it's somewhere I'm, you know, a funnel or something, I'm expecting them to come through. Like I say, I want to get on that far as I can downwind side, but, you know, say if, if I'm sitting looking one direction and I'm expecting, you know, the deer to come from the way I'm looking, I want my wind blowing just right or just left of where I'm expecting to come from because he's going to have that wind kind of crossing in his face and he's going to feel safe. At what point did you start doing this versus like the typical hunting style of having the wind always in your face? You know, a lot of it is just – listening to people a lot of it you know jeremy taught me a lot of this and we and one thing good about me and him what we do is we we're back and forth you know 
all whenever we hit the road traveling every night we're just about talking to each other what we seen what we done and we got to bumping back and forth you know situations he's been in and seen that happen situations i'd been in seen that happen and then we just kind of got to putting it all together and got to figuring it out you know say he went and say he's seen a big deer in a spot me and him both are bad about doing that if we see a deer if we jump it or we see it go through somewhere we'll walk up to that spot we'll stand there which way is the wind coming from he went that way why is it going that way what's the wind doing right here where can i get from right here i have a wind he has a wind you know he's going to feel safe coming through but he's not going to be able to smell me you know with with this wind that i have right now at this moment uh, because you know say a, we see a deer go through a spot we'll walk up there okay it's a north wind all right say the next day we get a north wind that deer could possibly do the same thing at the same time because he had the wind he needed to do that so that's why we go and look at a spot if we see a deer there and that that over the years like i say with both of us kind of bouncing back and forth with experiences like that is how we've developed this you know cutting corners uh with the wind on deer and catching them traveling in spots like that now another thing about this to give listeners a better idea of like what we're talking about whether you're sitting in a saddle and you're facing the tree and you're facing the direction you think the deer's coming from, or you're sitting in a, like a lock on our climber and you're facing the direction the deer come from, you're talking about having that wind kind of coming off at maybe like a 45 degree angle off your left or right shoulder, kind of cutting across you, where you're still kind of potentially, you know, thinking that that buck's going to be coming from somewhere directly out in front of you, but he's going to have like a slot, he's going to be coming in with the wind quartering to his face, but hopefully based off, you know, how you're setting up, based off the pinch points, which we're going to talk a little bit more about pinch points, you've already mentioned slews and stuff or corners, but you're setting yourself up where he's coming in with that wind in his face and you are ju- that wind is just off by the time he's within bow range or if you're hunting with a killing rifle. Killing wind. Yeah, killing wind. Or if you're hunting with a rifle, you have a, a good opportunity to shoot him before he ever busses you. Um, and that's something that I, I'm still even – like there's times when I'm like I have to talk myself into it because you feel like, oh, man, like you know, I'm potentially ruined this you know pie of this area. Like I'm blowing my wind directly out in front of me. But the more and more guys I talk to, like yourself and Jeremy and – so many others, it seems like that's such a factor, especially when we're talking about high-pressured whitetails. I think if you're on like a super manicured, you know, very low pressure or zero pressure, you know, state park or um, piece of private land that never gets hunted, maybe those deer act a little bit different and maybe that they're not as uptight. But when we're talking about super high-pressure deer, like where you're at, you know, hunting bucks, you know, that are getting ran by dogs or you're in, you know, different parts of Mississippi or different states where there's a lot of other hunters out there, those the, the bucks that get to five, six, seven years old or older, they're doing something to stay alive, and they're not just sitting down the whole time, their whole life, you know, trying to wait it out. They're still moving. Uh, it seems like some of those bucks, especially the older bucks, you know, of course you might be able to catch one during the rut, you know, acting all crazy, but if you're talking maybe pre-rut or just kind of later, almost like the, the tail end of the rut, it seems like that's like a, a commonality with a lot of these guys that we talk to, like yourself, that, that buck's always coming with a wind advantage. And that's why I had a guy ask me one time, I'm trying to remember who it was on the podcast. Um, and he was, he was, he said like, how many times have you been sitting in a stand where you're hunting with the wind in your face and you have a buck, like a big buck coming from behind you? Like you didn't call, you didn't do anything, but he showed up right here behind you. And a lot of times it's because that's the way he's traveling with the wind and he's coming up behind you. Next, thing you know, you, you bump him, you blow him, whatever. And uh, he turns, or maybe you get a shot off at him. And I'm like, I've had it happen many a times. I had a guy talk to the hunted local piece of public land up here. 
and two of his biggest bucks he's ever killed. And this guy's a fairly new hunter, but he's killed like two bucks I know that are over 140 inches in Alabama public as a newer hunting. He hunts only off the ground, and both of those bucks he's killed have come in directly behind him when he's been hunting off the ground with the wind in his face. And just happened to be, he heard them before they got directly down with him. He was a swing, he was able to swing around and shoot them. Um, but it seems like that is a very common trait of a lot of these older mature bucks I'm hearing from, especially guys that are hunting the southeast. Like it seems like that buck's using some kind of wind advantage when he's coming into a location, if he can. Oh, like I say, for sure he's going to play that wind. And I've, you know, I've done that too, with with having them come in downwind of me, and. You know, when I'm, when I try to play the wind like that, you know, like I say, I get a, you know, I know a general direction they're going to be coming into or, or coming from more than likely. Um, and I, you know, I'm trying to get to where, say, I'm up against something. I'm up against water. I'm up against, say, in the hills. I'm in a steep area that they're not going to want to travel around. I'm up against that with a, a wind pushing against me that, you know, I feel like they're going to come as close as they can to me. That way they can keep that wind in their face because they kind of feel safe. They're like, all right, there shouldn't be nothing over here. And I got a wind coming right in my face, sort of. But if you're in that zone that they're not expecting you to be and they're feeling comfortable with it, you know, that's what I try to look for when I'm hunting. So like I say, it could be water, it could be blowing across water. Uh, if you're say in the hills, it could be blowing. If you're on a ridge, say you're in a, a bend of a ridge, you know, you're on a point where it's just blowing all the way back across the a bottom, you know, or a drain or whatever you want to call it. You know, that's what I try to look for when I'm playing the wind. Also, you know, when it comes to playing the wind and hunting, I want to kind of get back to a little bit more of your strategy and tactic when it comes to the areas you like you find these mature bucks during the rut in Mississippi when they're running dogs what are some of these like commonalities or is there any kind of commonality in like where you find those bucks when all that pressure is on those deer at one time when they're still trying to rut I mean is there any whether you're hunting the river bombs or you're hunting the hill country in the pines is there anything that's like kind of a commonality about you know, if I, like whether it's thick cover, whether it's certain features that seems like for whatever reason, if I get in an area like that, I could have, you know, a better opportunity for a mature buck coming through than some other spot per se. You know, I've seen time and time again over the years that there is certain areas that, you know, during that high pressure time of dog hunting gun season that I see these bucks get back into you know, where nobody's wanting to go to, or, you know, I, a lot of times I've seen some areas dogs don't even go to just because, you know, they've been down in, in those places enough. They're like, you know, that's a hard place to get to. And you wouldn't believe a dog sometimes will, you know, not go to some extremely hard areas to get to. Um, but like I say, I have seen a common, you know, factor in that as far as, and more so the time of year, just because that's when our pressure gets the highest, you know, during dog season and gun season. I, you know, there's certain areas that I've seen over the years that bucks are going to go back into. And that's where I like to try to dive into once, you know, I know that pressure's high enough, they should be back in there. All right. If it's not, if we're not giving away too many secrets here, you got to give me some examples. 
Like, what, what are some of these areas? Like, hey, he's smiling, guys. Again, you know, we try to ask those pressing questions. You tell me if we got to tap out and move on, I'll move on. But, I mean, no, this – I'll tell you, I ain't got no problem telling you because ain't nobody else going to find it. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you an example, you know, a, a deer I killed down here last year. It was a big slough. It's a, a huge slough. It's super long. It's like a mile and a half long. And there's only two ways to get into it. Um, and there's a beaver dam that I know about that I can cross it, which means I don't have to walk near as far as most everybody else which you can ride four-wheelers on this core ground in Mississippi. So, you know, you could have people in there riding four-wheelers. They could get around to it. But most most of the time, if you're riding four-wheelers down here to go in hunting somewhere, you're pretty much out of luck, you know, because the deer know. They're like, all right, they're up there at the parking lot. They cranked up. Y'all just don't move today <laughs> because they know, they know pressure's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But – in this one area, you know, it, I had a good wind pushing up against that slough on the south side of it. And it was a morning real wet. I knew it was a long way to get back in there. And I knew that them bucks, because I, you know, I'd seen some deer in there and I know that it's one of them spots at that time of year, it's super hard for anybody to get to. It's a great area, especially with that wind that day I had that I felt those deer could possibly be, you know, stacked up in there against that slough with that wind and it took me i think it ended up being like four miles i walked from the time i left the truck that morning made the loop around the slough i ended up killing the deer about halfway through you know the walk i packed him up and brought him back out um but like i say something that's super hard like that to get to like that slough nobody else was walking not like granted there's people like i say riding four-wheelers around there and then walking but most of the time nobody is walking from their truck being super quiet slipping and 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 hunting like that playing wind and and getting back in those areas nobody else is 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 really focusing on does it seem that like in situations like that does it seem like those deer get stacked up in the spots where the wind is coming from the access point blowing back into that spot or does that not matter it's just about distance between where they want to be and the access point you know i've i've really i've seen both um not so much around here though that way um just because like i say you could park and there could be bedding you know everywhere um but I see more just around here is overlooked, untouched corners. Like there's there's one spot, perfect example, right down here off the side of the road. The big block of public is on the left, and there's like a 50-acre block on the right. And there was like, I know I seen a buck there, Jeremy seen a buck there, and there was a couple other people told us about seeing deer cross in that spot. It's 50-acre block on the side of the road. It's grown up CRP field. Nobody's hunting it. Nobody. And so we kind of went in there and done some scouting later on in the year. You know, the time of year we were seeing the deer there, and everybody else told us they kind of seen bucks crossing right there, was that what I consider for down here, that travel time. But uh, Right before Christmas, they said they kept seeing them bucks cross the road. Like I say, I seen one, Jeremy seen one. There was probably a total of four or five bucks there you know, seen there over the, over the, you know, the winter, but it was an overlooked corner. It was 50 acres 
on the other side of the road. Nobody else was thinking about a deer being in. What do you think it is about when you have huge amounts of public, <clears throat> whether it's, you know, where I'm at, where we're at, you know, I, I don't call it a big piece of public unless it's, it's got to be at least over 10,000 acres. But you go to some places like Iowa and a big piece of, ch- a big piece of public is 2,000 acres, maybe, or yeah. 1,500 acres, or even 1,000 acres. So it's all relative where, to where you're at. But, like, what do you think it is about those, like, off the, like, those separate little parcels? Because it always seems like, you know, a lot of public land, especially down here where we're at, it's all broken up. Like, you don't have there, – there's some – you'll find, like, huge chunks of public. It's, you know, continuous. But a lot of times you got a parcel here, you got a parcel there, you got a big parcel here. What do you think it's about those smaller little parcels that they just don't get pressure for whatever reason? Do you think it's just, like, guys are like, man, you know, if it's, you know – 30 or 40 acres or 50 acres or 75 acres. Like, that's not big enough for me to run around on if I'm hunting public. Like, what do you think about – like, why, why do you, those places potentially not get the pressure that the bigger parcels may get? I think a lot of it is, you know, you hear people talk about places they hunt, you know, down here. Like I say, there's a hunting club that's 10,000 acres that I've been in for a long time. Another hunting club is like 2,000. When you're used to hunting big blocks like that, especially in the South, let me put it this way, in the South, because I've always looked when I was going to other places for big areas. And one thing about going somewhere, even in, you know, even around here, people look for the biggest areas they can when it doesn't take but one tree to kill a deer. You don't have to have a giant block. And like you say, a lot of people think that because, you know, 30 acres they can run around that really fast you know there's no reason for a deer to be on 30 acres but if it's say 30 acres in the right place that's all you need when you think turkey calls think of houndstooth houndstooth game calls is a company based right here in alabama actually based out of tuscaloosa and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012 y'all head on over to their website see what they got they got a little something for everybody they have a huge selection of different mouth calls different cuts different read configurations. i like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them see which ones i like the most you know some days i might like the kb hen some days i might like the ghost cut some situations i might like the country girl call you know that i can cut on really hard where on other situations i might like the all pro that i can get a little bit softer on bottom line there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey you you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? 
Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the true lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the true lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the true lock choke is unbelievable. Like, everybody's jaws were dropping. Like, when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. The same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K-chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring. Especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with True Lock. With a really good rut funnel that's got doe bedding close by and a thick corridor going through it, it's a, that's a match made in heaven. Yeah, that's all you need. And if you're the only one that thinks about that and hunts it, that's really all you need. That, that's a good point because, like you know, you'll you'll go around in like different parts of the, like the southeast, you know, especially around uh, you know rivers or just different broken up pieces of public. Like you'll have those small parcels where it's like. 20, 30 acres here, 40 acres here. Then you might have a couple hundred acres here, a thousand acres there. And it's like, like you said, it's like those small parcels. I mean, cause I've, I've I'm trying, I don't know if I've necessarily overlooked some, I've had some success in Tennessee and some really small parcels of public that, um, that a lot of guys just didn't want to deal with. Uh, most of the time, the ones I've found, there was no, unless you had a boat, which I didn't have a boat. You had to come through someone's backyard. So I got access to this woman. I told we told the story in the podcast. This old lady, I, she let me come through her her backyard to go hunt this spot. And every time I'd go hunt, I hunted like three or four times. Every time I'd come back on an evening hunt to be early season, uh, she'd have a plate of cookies made for me. So uh, that, that that you know that that was pretty sweet. But uh, and uh, I, I want I never turkey hunted that place, but she always would say there's turkeys always in her front yard. I'm like, and she had like five acres. I'm like, I'll be there. You let me. I'll take a bow, shotgun, whatever you let me do. Um, and, uh, shoot one of those turkeys, but, um, yeah, that is a good point. Like you said, like, you know, it's kind of like the flip side, like you've already talked about like going in really deep, especially with the dog pressure, but especially in areas where maybe like the dog pressure isn't as significant, or it seems like these guys that run dogs, they're trying to do it on really big parcels of land that if you can find little smaller parcels off the edge of it, maybe it doesn't have the dog pressure on it unless the dogs run on it, which could always happen. But, uh, it's like a, it's a little sanctuary, and as long as it has the right features, you know, you have thick cover, and especially if you're talking to the rut, some kind of travel corridor funnel. And we've talked a little bit about like the uh, the sloughs and everything else, so like the you know thick edges, the hill country, all that kind of stuff that those deer might use. But you find the right little parcel, and that could be that that right little corner that you could find just unbelievable hunting opportunities on instead of going to go tramp around on or tramp around on you know tens of thousands of acres of public. Um, so that, that that is a really good point, and so I guess that more people overlook than, than not. Um, especially if you have, to me, like where that always happens, where I see it, um, uh, there's a spot in Tennessee that comes to mind, light bulb that, um, uh, we hunted a few years ago and I, I, I wounded a big buck, uh, like 135 inch nine point and Jacob Emery shot a nice buck on that place. And that was a very small parcel. It was like maybe 35 acres or so. And it was separate against like a lot bigger public and everybody was on the bigger public. Nobody looked at that little 35 acres. And I think we found like seven or eight bucks in that 35 acres and shot two of them, killed one of them. So, uh, in the same afternoon. So, uh, that is a very, very good point. Like don't overlook those small parcels for the, the bigger chunk just cause you think you're going to walk around the whole time. Because sometimes this is, this is like the contradicting aspect of the podcast. You know, we have guys on all the time. Some guys say, cover all the ground, be super aggressive. And other guys are like, oh, you got to lay back a little bit and, you know, really hand-select when and how you go into spots. 
and that's what I love about like talking to whitetail hunting, especially in the southeast. There's so many different ways to be successful, but if you kind of think out of the box like this, you, you can find that success in different areas where other guys are just truly overlooking it because they don't think it's worth their time to go walk in there. Um, by the way, real quick, in, in your area of Mississippi, um, especially the rare bomb stuff, has the state ever gone in and uh, like clear cut timber and planted back oaks, like in like a kind of like a plantation style where they're all in rows and everything? Have y'all do y'all deal with that over there? Right in this area I live in, not really. Um, a lot of your Delta stuff that was say bought and it was farm ground or you know CRP ground, you know when they bought it, they have went back and planted hardwoods. Um, have all you, in that. Have you ever had success in those areas? To be honest with you, I've never hunted them that much, just because a lot of them places are good. You know, they're bow hunting areas, and I haven't found good areas or good spots, I guess you could say, to bow hunt in. Um, I'm sure if I could get down there and learn them, you know, I could. It'd be great, great hunting. Uh, but I, in part, me personally, I've never hunted that stuff. I, I bring it up because I've seen that stuff in where, where they go through, and like you said, it's old pasture land. They come and they plant hardwoods. They plant like down here. I know they do a lot of water oaks or live oaks or yeah. different you know, oak species, but they plant them in rows. And it looks like you're on a pine plantation, but it's, it's oaks. And I've seen that in Arkansas. I've seen it in Tennessee, and I've seen it in Alabama. And it's like those areas are to, to me, because everyone I've ever been to, like the trees aren't more like 25 years old, and they're like this, they're, you know, for the viewers, you know, they're like, eight, 10 inches in diameter. They're not big trees. And uh, they have a pretty low canopy. And sometimes they get shaded out. Sometimes you have like thicker growth on there, especially some of the trees die. But like you always find, I've all in all those areas, and each state I've been to, always find big bucks on. I have no clue how to hunt that effectively because it's just like this huge, it's like it's like the opposite of like a pine monoculture. Uh, just how it, this is this huge block of, uh, you know, these planted oaks. And, you know, they produce a little bit, they produce uh, acorns, but it's like, there's not a lot of cover, but the deer are clearly using it. You find a ton of, you know, you typically find a lot of big scrapes in that in those areas, but it's like, you know, if you hunt from a tree, you're not going to be more than like eight feet up a tree. And if you're eight feet up a tree, you can't shoot probably 20 yards because there's so many limbs and stuff. And if you sit on the ground, you're a lot of times fairly wide open. Um, so I've always wondered if I could ever find somebody ever had success in that kind of yeah. stuff, what the, what the strategy would be. Cause, uh, it seems pretty tough hunting, but the deer clearly use those areas, especially early before the leaf drops, especially early. Um, but also kind of in your area, one thing you mentioned, and we haven't died, we haven't dove on this topic yet, but I do want to talk about it is the idea of, uh, slip hunting, still hunting. This is something that I have done very little of. I've actually, I'll be honest, I've done it more with a bow than I have with a rifle, funny enough, which is kind of weird. Uh, I've shot a couple of deer on the ground with a bow. No big bucks or anything, but I've shot one buck and a couple of does on the ground like this. What is your thought process? Because you just mentioned that one time when you went in like four and a half miles, you were slip hunting, I, I believe, and you shot that buck way back there in that slough. What is your thought on slip hunting during that, those high pressure points of the season, maybe when you can take a gun? in the southeast and kind of mississippi what's your thought process on slip hunting and like why do you see it being fairly effective especially in the habitat that you hunting down there you know a lot of it is just say the pressure um and a lot of times i want to i'm if i'm with a gun slip hunting i'm down in flat ground where i'm you know i'm in these bottoms you're seeing in the woods two three hundred yards you know, there's just, there's hardly no chance for you to see a deer, 
him not see you, you know, with a bow and be able to get up there and get a shot. So with a gun, you know, I like slip hunting mainly around here because the mature buck density is not very high. So it's not like going, say, to your northern states and hunting a funnel and seeing 10 bucks a day, say two or three of them being a mature three and a half, four and a half, five and a half year old deer. Around here, you're liable to cover thousands of acres just walking, you know, walking through the woods looking, and you might see two bucks. And they're liable to be spikes, you know. So the mature buck density down here being as low as it is, though we have a, a huge population of deer, don't get me wrong about that, but the mature buck density is low in this area. Now, there's some areas you can get, and it's, you know, booming. But right here, it's not as much. And that's why I like slip hunting. You can catch them off guard. Uh, you can see them. And, you know, with a rifle, you, like I say, you can shoot two or 300 yards in the woods or, you know, whatever kind of terrain you're in. You can shoot them out there where they feel at a comfortable distance, especially if they see you. Um, because I've done that several times. I'll be walking through the woods and I see a deer and he's looking at me. You know, he's 150, 200 yards away. You know, if I had a bow, there's no chance of me getting him. But I had a, you know, having a gun, you have the opportunity to get up, get on him, take a shot before he takes off running. When you're going in to plan your, your still hunt where you're going to go slipping through the woods with a rifle, how do you pick an area to do that? It sounds like you're you're looking at more open woods uh but is there anything about that more open woods setting like that separates one section of open woods from another section of open woods like are you looking for for proximity to bedding thickets are you looking for a a, a bunch of pinch points in one area i mean what separates one area from another well Honestly, a lot of it is it'll just be places, like I say, that I've been to before, kind of like when I was finding scrapes earlier in the year. I've been through. I know kind of what the area looks like as far as, you know, there being thickets around. I like hunting thickets or hunting or slipping through thickets or around thick areas because I know they're going to be bedded in those areas or close or does could be bedded there, you know, in those thick spots. Bucks could just be coming through checking them um what you know while i'm slipping through there and you know i like you say i like finding the thick spots you know some funnels a lot of times when i'm just looking for area though just somewhere to go look um i'm looking for big areas that i can travel and a lot of times what i use slip hunting for is scouting you know and i just play the odds of having a chance but I like scouting that way. Say the next time I want to go do a slip hunt, uh, you know, I know what the terrain looks like. So then I can change up my strategy a little bit more for what I need to do in that area. What What would that look like that where you're changing up your strategy, like just a, a better route that you're taking where you're like, Hey, next time I should start here and I should take this little ditch and I should pop out at this big giant oak tree and, and, and stand behind like stuff like that. Or are you just fine tuning? So you're, you're swinging through more of those bedding thickets. Kind of both. Um, a lot of times say in the bottoms, in the flat ground, if you, if you look at a map, 
you can't really tell where the little small thickets in the woods are um it's just pretty much treetops when you're looking at a map as far as that so you know when i'm going in an area a new area i like going through there finding thicker corners thicker blocks um say maybe it's some down trees or whatever that's had stuff growing up uh, on it or around it maybe it's a spot trees a few trees fell sunlight got in there and, and stuff grew up underneath everything um just knowing where those little you know minor detail spots are and then the next time i'm going in there and easing up to them or you know easing around them with a wind that's favorable for me uh in that situation because sometimes i've been in an area a new area to go through i busted deer out of a little spot but i had the wind wrong not knowing that that was there uh i went in with you know it was a wrong wind busted them okay the next time I know, hey, I bust a deer around this little area right here, but I need this wind to do it. I can slip in without deer knowing it and, you know, possibly have a chance at something before they see me. Yeah. Now, in that situation, I want to ask about the wind for sure, but in that situation, are you are you slipping through, like, looking for bedded deer? Like, are you looking for deer that are actually, like, laying down bedded, or are you just looking for deer that are kind of walking around or maybe feeding? A lot of times I'm looking for deer up moving, you know, feeding, um, or just say if you get in an area where the bedding is, you know, they may get up and just move a little bit around where their bed is at. Uh, because a lot of times if you don't see movement or something, you know, some people are great at just seeing a deer laying there. And I've done it before too, but, you know, movement catches your eye more than, uh, say an ear or something just laying there or a deer's rack or whatever um like i say a lot of times and, and how i like to slip hunt is i'll ease up through there i may go say i can see 300 yards you know i'll walk up to as far as i could see earlier i'll sit down 10 minutes 15 minutes you know get up and walk as far as i could see from the point i was sitting down and just you know, it could be just like bouncing around, sit down, hunt for 10, 15 minutes in a spot, get up, move around again. Um, but, you know, we like hunting that that move time, you know, the lunar move times, that minor and major times during the day. So that's what I like to focus on a lot of times when I am doing my slip hunting is when is the highest possibility that deer could be up moving around, that I could catch them up, you know, on their feet. Okay. Now, are you, when you say you're you're going in with a favorable favorable wind, does that are you just basically walking in with the wind dead in your face, or are you still trying to maybe give the deer some kind of crosswind, or or just how are you playing the wind when you're walking in? A lot of times, what I'm doing is I'm paralleling where I expect deer to be. So, a lot, and and I'm using a example winds in my face but instead of me you know expecting the deer to be straight in front of me i'm expecting them to be to my right or my left paralleling with them you know possibly catching them just traveling up through with the wind or across uh across in front of me you know 
I'm just trying to catch deer up moving around. I'm not necessarily trying to catch them traveling as much, but just up moving around a bedding area, feeding, nibbling around just a little bit, just something to get them up on their feet. Uh, Daniel, clarify for me one more time. When you're talking about favorable winds, you're talk, are you talking about putting that wind at your back or are you talking about a headwind for you walking with a headwind? A headwind for me, um, that just, like I say, when I, I want to be walking with the wind in my face and I'm looking like I'm looking, you know, 360 degrees the whole time uh, because I walk slow enough that, you know, say if there is some deer traveling or whatever, if I'm side to side one way or another, I've had actually deer come walking from behind me, past me and keep going, never know I'm there. So I'm trying to walk with the wind in my face, but keep, the areas I'm expecting the deer to be one side of me or the other, you know, and that could be 150, 200 yards. You know, they're plenty safe. They're playing the wind in their face. I'm playing the wind in my face, but they're safe. They feel safe and, you know, they can't smell it. Now, in that situation, to give people an idea of what the setting is, how much ground are you trying to cover? when you're going out and still hunting like this, is there ever like a goal or, or how much ground do you usually end up covering at the end of the day when you've been still hunting like this? A lot of times it fits an area I've been to. I just make me a route that I want to slip through. Um, and that could be, you know, that could be most of the time it's no less than a mile. It's that and more. Uh, one day I made a loop. It was like, ended up being like 12 or 13 that I made. I walked across the river. I walked through a, an area I hadn't been to. It was kind of just a mix of walking through areas that I knew I'd been to before. I've seen deer uh, and also just bouncing across and looking at some new areas I'd never been to uh, just to see what was there. And so it could, it could vary. Um, just depends on what I feel like doing most of the time. Now, also with the slip hunting, so this is something I've been always uh, interested in doing because, you know, in pine country, like where we're at, it, it'd be very difficult to slip hunt. I mean, I know guys that do it like in and around fresh clear cuts and they'll do it like, you know, early morning, mid morning, early afternoon, and they'll kind of stop before evening, but they'll slip through kind of like around the edge of a clear cut, kind of watching back into the clear cut, watching to the timber. And I know there's actually two local guys to us that had really good luck doing that and killing good deer. But when I think of slip hunting, I think of like big expansive, specifically hardwoods or just more mature timber. Like you said, like you can see. So it's like the advantage of slip hunting is you can kind of work your way into like finding that sign. Cause I'm guessing if you get into an area where like say you're you're slipping through some of those that hardwood that like hardwood slash pine river bomb stuff that's more open, and you get in a location, and you just happen to run across this some crazy sign, huge rubs, big scrapes, you know, just fresh pawings, the whole nine yards. Is that one of those areas that you may sit longer than ten minutes and just kind of like, hey, let's sit here for an hour and a half or something like that and see if something happens, or do you still like to have the mindset I'm I'm gonna keep moving until I kind of work my way into a deer? I've I've done that. You know, I'll find some sign like that, and I'll just sit down and plant. Just like I'm here for a while, you know. They've got good fresh sign, big sign. Like there's been a big deer coming through here, uh, pretty regular. And also, you know, 
I'll mark those spots to come back to a different day. And a lot of times when I find stuff like that, I try to come back and sit. You know, I'll take my saddle, climb up, and I'll just hang there for a while. And uh, like I say, a lot of times that's what I use slip hunting for is scouting big areas. But like I say, it's also very effective just to, to catch deer off guard, you know, when they're not expecting you and uh and getting a chance at them yeah no i mean when when you're saying all this there are spots that come to mind in a couple of different states I, I i'd love to do this more so in instead of just going in and hunting like a specific funnel or something like that but truly trying to ease your way through a spot specifically hunt more river bottom habitat and and try to ease your way into a spot that maybe you like hey i need to come back here in a day or two when the conditions get even better is this one of those things that like do you have like ideal conditions you like for s- slip hunting or will you use it on a less than optical day or optimal day for, uh, you know, being in the saddle or the tree stand that you'll slip hunt? A lot of times what I like to do as far as condition wise is a super windy day or a day after a rain front has come through when everything's wet, quiet, um, you can barely hear yourself walk in the leaves or something. Um, most of the time, anything to cover my noise or keep me quiet is what I like to, to do the slip hunting in. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I was wondering, like, definitely high wind conditions and or just after some rain would be pretty awesome, especially if you're going to an area that, like, hey, I know where there's a bunch of scrapes at, and you could ease yourself into that location. Because I'm thinking about also, like, real steep hill country, like big hardwood hill country and uh, or big ponds and doing the same thing like after a storm or something and like just slip your way into those spots hold up for a little while keep on moving around the side of those hills until you run into you know potentially a buck cruising um do you ever implement uh calling at all when still hunting down here in the south hardly ever most of the time i don't and i you know rattling i've never had rattling really work enough for me to do it I've only had it work a couple times, had a deer come into it. Um, most of the time, only calling I do is if I see a deer and, you know, I'll just kind of test the waters a little bit per se and just see what he, what he's interested in. If I call, grunt to him, whatever, he don't pay me no attention. You know, I just kind of let him go and not, you know, bother him too bad. Let me ask you this. Um, well, Andrew, do you have any other questions about Mississippi? Because I want to ask him a couple other things. I, I, I really wanted to get into pinch points. Okay. Uh, especially around, uh, like, the river bottom stuff. Is that kind of where yeah, you were going? No, yeah, yeah, roll with it. Okay, okay. So, when it comes to pinch points, uh, you mentioned a little bit about, like, sloughs, water, stuff like that. Did I – correct me if I'm wrong, but did I also hear you mention, like, a, like a hill – or like some kind of ridge system where they're going to maybe come up to the edge of that, but they don't really want to go up on it? Well, not necessarily just a, a pinch point in a hill, but if you if you ever look at a topo map, you know, you, you see how a ridge, you'll, it'll kind of bend and wind, sort of. It won't stay, say, a true north or, you know, a true north and south, a true east and west. You know, say it may be, running fairly north but it'll cut northeast or straight east or west or any kind of offset direction like that that's kind of what i look for when i'm hunting a hill hilly area 
is that little bit of offset where say you got a strong north wind and most of the time the deer if he's walking down the ridge he's in that north wind but okay you get to this one corner and it cuts east and then back north i want to be on that far east side where you know i'm offset just a little bit with the wind from him okay that makes sense so how does that factor into like that same concept how does that factor into maybe more flatland funnels like are are is it always like a slough or it, or does it always involve water or are there other kind of funnels that you like to focus on in the more river bottom flatland stuff in the river bottom in the flat more the flat ground it's pretty much water um that i that i try to hunt and use funnels for pinch points um, any kind of natural barrier that they don't cross on a daily basis you know it's one that you know they may cross if they're forced to pressure to but if they don't have to they'll you know go out of their way to use an easier route that you know say it it bends around just a little bit for example there's a spot down here it's a big river and a big slough and in one spot it offsets just enough that they can come around and most of the time have their wind the wind in their face but in this one spot you know they have to cut a little bit further you know i think it's east they gotta go and then they can turn back and say have a a, a north say it's a northwest wind one day and i can go to this spot and they can travel that pretty much with a northwest wind that way the whole time but in this one spot they've got to cut east for it may be a hundred yards or so and then they can turn back northwest i want to be where i can you know i'm in that further east position where they can't smell me but they're you know the wind is at their disadvantage for just a little bit and it's good for me or slightly good for me. And then they can turn back and be in that, you know, safe wind for them. So, so you're like, you're really fine tuning and you're trying to find that exact spot where, like you just said, the wind is for, for them is not ideal for, I mean, just a little bit. They're kind of compromising themselves for just a minute. And you're right there in that spot where they have to compromise their wind, you know, in order to get the wind back in their favor. And that's where you're waiting on them. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a, it's where it's where you want to be, because they don't mess up many times. But you find a spot like that, the deer travel through, and you know they've been through there enough. They felt safe, and and you know they they've come through there multiple times. That's about the only time that I've seen, you know, unless it's them chasing a doe, or you know, I mean, there's several different, you know, circumstances you could catch a deer messing up in. But when they're traveling, that's spots that I look for that they could slightly be messing up. You know, they could just a slight disadvantage for them for, it may not be for five minutes that they've got a wind to their disadvantage, but that's what I'm looking for. Okay. How do thermals play into that, if at all? Around here, we're not steep enough, you know, for thermals in really any way um we have more wind swirls even in the bottoms we get bad swirling winds um unless it's a, a lot of times what we look for is a day that's 10 miles 
an hour wind or, or better. That's about the only consistent wind we'll have. Um, but as far as thermals go around here, we don't play them too much. Um, in Arkansas, where I hunt, it's really steep country. Now I've played it somewhat kind of just experimenting with it because I'm not great on the thermals. Like I say, we don't never have really hunted thermals around here. So it's kind of a new thing for me, learning thermals and how to play them with a the wind on certain days. Um, and I haven't really figured it out yet. But uh, if you know how to play thermals in areas like that, then that, that can be killer for killing a sure enough mature buck. Okay, yeah, got gotcha. you. So what you want to get into uh, the traveling? Yeah, yeah, Dan, I want to talk to you a little about the traveling aspect. You know, one big benefit of living in the deep south is we have the opportunity. And now, now Georgia is a little bit different because Georgia, some of the places in Georgia have a crazy early rut. Like I know like southeast Georgia, you can help some public down there and, you know, be hunting deer, like rutting activity, like legitimately late September, early October and like throughout mid-October. And, and you know, they can hunt the rut there all the way through like mid-November, late November in the state of Georgia. But in Mississippi and Alabama and even Arkansas is kind of like this in certain places, you can hunt. You can travel around and hunt all these different states, kind of like in the Midwest or even other states in the Southeast that have more of a traditional November rut. And you don't even have to worry about being back home until mid-December, no, mid if not late December. That's exactly how it is for us, too. What do you think is, like, the biggest, like, benefit like that with us living in the Southeast, like where you live, to be able to have the opportunity? Because I hear so many guys in the North, in the Midwest, like, man, I want to go hunt all these other states, but – you know, during the rut, but, you know, my rut's, you know, that first couple of weeks of November, and I don't really want to, you know, leave there to go hunt somewhere else where we have the opportunity. It's not hurting us at all unless you want to hunt early season down here to be going on travel. So, like, what's what's been, like, your uh, big advantage or, or thought process of living in the deep south like that and having that opportunity to be able to travel and still not miss, you know, quality time hunting during the rut down here in, in Mississippi? Well, like you say, it just being so late in the year – um, you know, a lot of people around here, you know, they're always, you know, they're waiting on the rut. They're like, well, you know, rut ain't till Christmas or whatever. And it's, say, mid-October. You're like, man, in two weeks, the rut's fixed to be kicking somewhere. It ain't here. It'll be up north somewhere. Pick your spot and go there. So I think really what got me really into the traveling more um, was being able to go hunt somewhere else, hunt the rut somewhere else before it ever got started, even close to starting around here. And if you ever look at a rut map of Mississippi, and, I, and Alabama's sort of the same way, but like, you know, the northwest corner of Mississippi, that rut kind of starts at Thanksgiving. And I, you know, I live about an hour from the northwest corner of Mississippi. So starting, you know, say end of, end of November, first of December, I can start hunting a rut in Mississippi. I can travel it all the way across till mid end of January and only go an hour max from my house and be hunting prime rut the whole time. And that's the way I look at, you know, going out of state. There's some areas that we know are killer at certain times in November. I mean, there's some areas that first of November is better mid-November's better, late November's better. And so that's why I love traveling so much is just to be able to hunt the rut longer. So 
first of November, you can start hunting. You know, the advantage I'll really see about living in the South is I can start hunting a rut somewhere first of November and hunt it for three months till the end of deer season down here. So you're hunting the highest percentage chance of finding a mature buck up on his feet, chasing does during a rut, you know, for three months straight. Yeah, no. See, that's what, uh, again, I, I'm just going to kind of read it, Rich. You said, like, that's what I love about living here in Alabama. It's the exact same thing. I mean, in Alabama, if you want to travel in just Alabama, like you, maybe you didn't have the time to go do, you know, five, six, seven, ten-day hunts out of state, you could hunt rutting deer in Alabama from the first week of November through the end of season, February 10th, if you really wanted to. Um, there's places that come in early, again, as late October, early November. And, again, for the whole season, you could just hunt Alabama – but that's what I love about, you know, living like where we live and kind of like where you live. It's like, dude, you can travel to all these other states and have all these other opportunities if you have the time to be able to do it. And also, it's not as overwhelming as people seem. Um, you know, Daniel, maybe this is something you can kind of mention on, especially, you know, it's one thing like you and me can relate, like being like single dudes, like you don't have a wife or kids or anything like that that you really have to like worry about, like, you know, being home for. Um, so you can kind of be gone as long as you get the money to, uh, to be able to stay gone and be able to take off time from work. But what has been like your biggest learning curve while traveling, hunting, um, and, and putting your, all your pieces together and like hunting different States? Like how, how have you taken what you've learned from Mississippi and applied to different States and does it apply in different States? Well, as far as the tactics and stuff, you know, and in a, in a certain sense, what I'm saying is deer, deer. You know, they're, they're living in thick areas. Uh, they're living in low pressure areas. You know, a lot of times what I try to look for when I'm going to hunt a, a new state, especially a state I've never been to or whatever, uh, even if it's one I have been to before, I'm trying to look for terrain that I feel comfortable with, whether it's hills or, or bottoms, river bottoms, farm ground, uh, wooded areas, because there's, there's similar terrain and you know land features in every state um so you know you can pick an area if it's similar to you i can go there you know scout it like i would anywhere else find the sign you know it like i say it's similar extremely similar techniques and tactics that i use the only thing is you might find a, a little bit of an odd difference in the way the deer travel there than you do here you might catch deer traveling coming out in more open areas a little earlier in the day than you do in the south i hardly ever hunt big open areas in the south because the deer just ain't going to come out till dark super dark um unless it's super cold you know where they have to get up and come feed before it gets you know late um but say in the midwest you can you can catch deer right on that edge of fields or even in fields or you know stuff like that but that just goes back to how the pressure is and how i see you know the gun seasons affecting them during the ruts too yeah absolutely you know it's i've now i'm i think i've hunted seven or eight different states for whitetails now um and i'll bring this up a couple times on past episodes but like andrew's wife tiffany god bless her she 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 there was a time, well, I guess it just happened a couple times. Like we went to uh, Wyoming a couple years ago, drew uh, tags that were good for whitetails or mule deer, and we were going to go hunt whitetails. And she was confused on why we drive all the way out there to go shoot whitetails in Wyoming. We have whitetails here. And 
said the same thing about us trying to draw Kansas, which we thought we were going to draw Kansas. Didn't draw it with three points. Or I didn't draw it with three points. He that didn't draw hurt. it with two. Um, but the thing about whitetails and what I love is, like, when you travel to different states and, and get opportunities to go hunt different states, whether you're going with a guide, an outfitter, whether you lease some property, whether you're knocking on doors, or whether you're hunting public land, it is an adventure everywhere you go. And I think that's what we love about it. I think that's what you and Jeremy love about it is that traveling aspect. Like, you never know what you're going to stumble into especially if it's a new area. And also one thing that's really exciting about me or for me is the idea of trying to learn an area that you've never been to in like five to seven days. Um, and like, just cause like, I don't know about you, but like when I'm, when I'm hunting public land back home, especially places I've hunted for a long time, I don't have the sense of adventure or excitement as I do. It's a brand new piece. I've never stepped foot on. You don't know what's around the next corner. You don't know what's over the next ridge, what's across the other, the next slough or Creek bottom. You don't know. And there's something about that adventure going out that to me just lights a fire underneath me that when you go on those trips, it is nothing but business when you're there. And uh, that's like the exciting aspect of traveling for whitetails, I think. Oh, I I think for me, the big thing is, you know, similar to what you said, you have, you know, say around home, there's a giant national forest I could go look at anytime I want to. Never step foot on maybe a few thousand acres of it and it's probably 50,000 acres um but when you travel and you're going to a state you're like i have this many days to look at as much as i can and i may or may not go back there depending on what i find so i have got to look at as much as i can as fast as i can and figure out you know how to take an animal as fast as i can in that time frame what do you think is uh, – I want to ask you this. What do, what do you think is the, one of the biggest hurdles most guys have when they do an out-of-state trip for the first time? Like the struggles they may have that, you know, you've kind of seen or maybe you personally have had or you've seen other guys have that, you know, maybe it's not as complicated as they make it seem to be. Hmm. I think a lot of it is just going in unprepared, you know, expecting – something you know super super high expectations um you know like last year went to wisconsin first time to wisconsin i was like oh man i'm going up here to shoot a giant you know gonna be a giant um you know got me it's just a it's a place you know wisconsin has one of the biggest highest numbers of boone and crockett deer kill more than iowa and it's over the counter state so I went into it. I'm like, all right, there's going to be 150 inch deer come out of here. Gonna be not leaving without one. <laughs> Stayed there uh, 16 days, I think, and finally shot one that broke 100. And I was like, all right, don't do that again. And, you know, I think a lot of people, what they do is when they go somewhere else, they expect too much out of it shoot the first thing that makes you happy that's what i've done from ever since i'm like all right that deer comes in it excites me that's what i'm going for you know don't put yourself expecting something unbelievable because if you look at it you're going to have a unbelievable experience that you would not have had any other you know wouldn't have had at home so it, it doesn't matter what it is because if you go to enough places and learn enough things, sooner or later that show enough 
150 will be the first one to walk by yeah i i agree um it's yeah i i i definitely agree with everything you're saying about like the expectations and everything it's like you know you, you gotta you gotta understand if you're especially if you're a non-resident even if you're, you think you're pretty good you go to one of these states that you're like man there's a there's a, a 140 150 behind every tree and it's not like that um at least in a lot of areas uh you get on the right piece of private land or maybe time it right maybe you see quite a few real big deer um but it's like this past year in Iowa, I saw an absolute giant and sat on that deer for four days um, and, and never got a shot opportunity of that deer. And he was a monster. Um, and then, you know, shot a deer a couple couple days, probably four days later, because we were there for 14 days, shot a deer a couple days later that was a really, really good deer, but it was nothing like what I was, like, trying to kill, like, when I was there. Uh, but then again, it's like, you know, you go to certain states, and it's like people go think of Iowa. Like I'm going to go kill 160 deer in Iowa. You could find one, doesn't mean you can kill one. Let alone, you know, even lay eyes on one. It, it, it's kind of crazy how that stuff works out. But that's one of the reasons why I love living in the southeast. Because the cool thing about living in the southeast, and kind of bring it back full circle here, is you, we have quite. A, we don't really have a tag system. I don't know if Mississippi doesn't have a tag system. Y'all just do like game check online, right? So there's no like paper yeah, tags or anything. Right, just the yeah. uh, online game check. So, like, in Alabama, Mississippi, uh, I want to say Georgia's the same yeah, way, Yeah, Georgia's right? the same way. Um, I, I know Arkansas does actual paper tags, but um, but it's digital checking, too. But anyways, the the thing is, like, you have so much opportunity to be able to get a lot of actual, like, killing experience in the southeast. It's like here in Kentucky, and you, it's a one-buck state. You can kill one buck a year. You kill a couple does. That's it. You know, I know in parts of Tennessee, you can kill three does a day for the whole season. Like, it's crazy. And I'm like, if you really want to have a ton of – of actual killing experience and like, especially as a bow hunter and, and get into like a groove of things. The Southeast is such a target rich environment. Like, yeah, you, you might not be shooting 140 inch deer all the time. And you might have to really go find those little, uh, little niche and crannies or nooks and crannies that you can find those deer in the Southeast, but you have a ton of a killing experience. So you understand the mental process of how to be able to execute a shot. Like it is like just on repeat. Like you just know how to do it every single time. And then when you get the opportunity to be able to go hunt a place that's maybe a little more target rich with, you know, potential better quality deer. Yeah, maybe you've never drawn your bow back on a deer that big, but you've killed a lot of deer with your bow or with your gun or muzzle loader. You got you that muscle memory. Kind of got a muscle memory. You know, as long as you don't look at the antlers too much, you, <laughs> you can make something happen. And that's one thing, I, again, I love about just living in the southeast is, like, you get a ton of opportunities to be able to kill a lot of deer. I think we did the math in Alabama. It was like 70-something deer you yeah, killed deer. Yeah, it's an almost like – it's it's close to a hundred. It might be a little bit above a hundred, actually. I don't know. Like, because you, you, you get you get a doe a day, and you get three bucks, and you get a bonus buck if you travel to W Mays who are doing bonus buck hunts. Yeah. So I mean, it's I don't know anybody that kills more than probably fifteen a year, but I do, I do know a decent number of folks that kill like fifteen a year though. Like yeah. that's not that uncommon. You yeah. Know? And, and again, just from a target rich environment, getting really good at especially bow hunting. I just think it makes you so good when you go to potentially travel. But also, I think another thing that bites people in the butt, um, Daniel, is guys. And I'm just I'm trying to like seriously work on is not being comfortable to shoot past 35 or 40 yards. Like not not being proficient enough to be able to execute that shot every single time. Um, the more and more guys like from the Midwest that can shoot 50, 60 yards like it's nothing. Like you know, stack arrows at 50, 60 yards. Um, to me, makes you such a more effective bow hunter where they're trying to shoot a deer at 45 yards or more. Um, you know, we, we got guys on the podcast that have shot deer at, you know, crazy long range, and they're extremely consistent. They kill a lot of deer like that. 
but they're also extremely skilled archers. Um, not everybody's like that, but you mentioned earlier that, you know, you're very proficient with your bow. And that's something I've never really focused a ton on. Like, you know, my, my thing is like, you know, 35 and in is my, is my kind of cup of tea, but there's been times like there was a deer down in South Alabama. We hunted a couple of years ago or a place we hunted. And I went in blind to the spot and had a really nice chocolate horn 10 point come out. And he was just a, Oh yeah. I misjudged the range and just, not having my bow completely dialed in, I skipped it raw off his back. Uh, at uh, he was probably I don't know, thirty eight yards, and that was a thing of like not not re ranging. He was feeding on water because like, he was calm as can be, and I just misranged him. wasn't paying attention while I was trying to film him in the rain and all this kind of crap, and skipped an arrow off his back. Um, and it kind of goes back to being able to you know shoot your gear effectively, understanding what your gear is capable of to be able to put yourself in the right position in order to like make those shot opportunities when it's given to you. Well, I think a lot of it on the bow side for Southern hunters is our deer react so fast at the sound of a bow going off that you don't want to shoot past 35 and 40 yards. When in the Midwest, deer don't react like that near as much. I've had a very few do it but majority of the time if you shoot at a, a buck past say 40 50 yards he don't ever move he just kind of stands there and looks so i think that's why more in the south you see bow hunters not shooting past that 40 45 yard max maybe because they've never been successful at it because our deer in the south are so keyed up so fast they react so much to it you're not confident out there past that 40 yard mark but in the midwest like i say the deer don't react like that so you can shoot one out there like you say some of those guys talking about 70 80 yards because the deer don't react they just stand there and just look around so that's that's why i think the southern you see southern hunters as far as bow hunters not feeling as confident shooting deer out there at a further distance than say uh, somebody that hunts the midwest that and also i'll say this <clears throat> so many guys in the southeast you know with their bow hunting you know they may be a little bit thicker cover especially if you're like in pine country you might not be able to shoot a deer at 50 yards even if you wanted to because of the cover you know that deer's got to be pretty tight to you and that's why like i've heard guys talking about like on some western podcasts that, that had like outfitters on that they were interviewing like outfitter like some of the clients they hated not hated but they, they always like worried the most about having camp where guys from the southeast because if they're antelope hunting the guys like i gotta have it 40 and in it's like dude you're not getting within 40 yards of an antelope this is not gonna happen and um but it's like seems like guys from other parts of the country they're in more open ground those deer may be less wary especially if like the shot of a bow um or maybe more confident in taking those shots at 50 60 you know 70 yards um and a lot of guys in the southeast, you say that, and like, dude, why would you ever shoot a deer at, you know, 60 yards in the south? It's like, you might. You, you mean, you might not. Um, and, again, the deer are so wary down here, you know, especially like a buck. You know, especially get some of these bucks around here, they're 150 pounds at five and a half years old. You know, they're pretty agile. It's not like a 250-pound buck up in, you know, Wisconsin or Iowa or Kansas. That sucker's not moving a whole bunch uh, when it comes to dropping out of the way and everything. So, I think that's a, that's a really big thing for people to consider and not dog and other guys are capable of making that shot in areas that that's actually effective at. Um, 
like a guy that comes to mind is Hunter Hogan. That dude's killed some deer at some crazy distance, and the deer just and he's got he self films all of it, uh, and, and just those deer just take the freaking arrow. And he is a he is like one of the best shots I've ever seen, especially as like a whitetail hunter. And uh, it's just you know amazing like what they can do in like those areas of the Midwest where those deer just don't move versus like down here in the deep south that even a buck you know he's on pins and needles at every point of his life and um he's willing to you know jump that string at any point he can get oh yeah and i mean that's a big big deal like you say just body size i think too as far as the deer go because you know i i killed a, a buck here and i i think it's been two years ago now he was at 40 yards calm as could be just standing there feeding shot and he whirled so fast the air ended up hitting him in the neck dropped him but he was like a i think he i was curious about how old he was because i knew he'd been around around a long time i think he ended up being like eight and a half and he reacted so fast to that and that was just at 40 yards and I think something else too around here, you know, in the south, it's so thick you can't see far when you get in the tree. You know, um, 40, 50 yards is a clear shot, maybe, you know, in the south. But when you get in your Midwestern stuff and you're in your Western, you know, states, good gosh, man, a, like you say, a close shot may be 50 yards because you can see so far, you can't get as close. So, and like you say, I'm confident enough, you know, and like I say, it's in certain situations too. Um, in the Midwest, you know, if I'm out there hunting and I perfect conditions, you know, no wind, there's a deer standing there calm, I'll take a, a long shot. I won't question it, won't second guess it. I'll just do it, you know, because I'm confident in that. And I shoot all summer for a shot like that. I might not get one shot a year if that you know at that distance i want to be confident enough that i can make that shot i can hit where that area is and you know down in the south here i may not shoot further than you know 30 or 40 yards you know during a year but if i only you know shot at those distances all summer you know if i'm in the midwest and there is a deer out there at say 60 70 yards if you know, I could shoot that far. I got a sight to shoot that far, but if I don't practice that far, I'm not going to feel confident I can hit something that far. So, you know, I'll just practice, practice outside your limits. You know, I shoot 100, 100 yards pretty much all summer. I hardly ever shoot under 60 yards, you know, during the summer because you shoot 60 and over, you would not believe how – you know, accurate you can be at that 30, 40 yard range, being closer to your target. You know, you 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 pull through your shot, you focus, you hold better. So practice, practice is the main thing. And practicing outside your normal comfort zone is a big, big key factor in helping you make those shots, you know, at longer distances, especially on the western and and midwestern animals that are not going to react as much to the shot 
Absolutely. Well, Daniel, uh, as a point of wrapping up here, uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast, man. This has been awesome. Uh, it was fun hanging out with you at the Mobile Hunters Expo and having you for the roundtable episode uh, with everybody. It was a great time. Uh, if guys want to follow along with you all uh, at Do It Yourself Hunter, how can they follow along on YouTube along with social media, with like y'all's Facebook group, and also maybe connect with you on Facebook or Instagram? Yeah, you can uh, you can check us out on Do It Yourself Hunter. Uh, YouTube at Do It Yourself Hunter. Uh, we have our, our Do It Yourself Hunter website with all our merch. If anybody wants to check that out, help support us, man, we really appreciate it. Uh, that's doityourselfhunter.com. Our Facebook page, you know, Do It Yourself Hunter. We got a group page and we got our personal page that uh, we post a good bit of stuff, you know, during hunting season on and off on our page. But you know, we really want to get a lot of people engaging on our group pages as far as just, you know, coming together as a hunting community of, you know, doesn't matter if you're a public land hunter, if you're a, somebody who hunts on hunting clubs, we just want to be a brand for the do-it-yourself hunter. It does not matter where, how, when, or why you're doing it, just as, you know, we just want to be a brand for everyone. Absolutely. And Daniel, they can, we can find you on Facebook and I guess you have an Instagram at what Daniel lemon. It's uh Daniel underscore lemon 19 on Instagram and it's Daniel lemon on Facebook. Awesome. Awesome. Daniel appreciate you joining us for this week's episode. Uh, guys, make sure you tune in for this week's uh, outro where we kind of break down a little bit more on this topic and a lot more. So Daniel, thank you for joining us and listeners uh, catch us back for this next episode. Come out. Uh, on the outro and uh, discussing some other episodes. We've got some other interesting guests coming on very, very soon. So appreciate y'all watching this episode. Appreciate y'all listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review on iTunes. And we'll catch y'all back in the next episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool, I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right, giving you a heads up here, so go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the... The, like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.